Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke, and I want to welcome you to the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode, this episode is for the week of September 11th through 17th. Our goal each week is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make disciples of Jesus. And this week we are learning more from Luke 2, verses 22 through 52. That'll be the sermon passage on this coming Sunday. And during our training segment, we're going to review the core measures of success in community groups. We're going to talk about what it means to grow in Christ as we continue to sort of review what it means to be a community group. And that is, by the way, before I get into anything else, that's what we're going to be doing on this coming Sunday, the 17th. Not only will we be able to worship together and and uh, sing and learn from the Bible, uh, but also we will have our community group kickoff. So uh, at 5.30 to 7.30 on Sunday night at Central Campus, come uh, you all are registered by now, and it's uh, it's too late to sign up <laughs> because we we have we are moving forward with our food orders and getting childcare set up and everything. But we're looking forward to gathering and uh, learning together and launching out into this year with some really clear and compelling purpose for what we are doing in our groups. And it all comes back down to what our mission statement is for our community groups. Community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. With that said, let's uh, let's take it away. So we got a few things to share with you this week. Uh, if you were at the congregational meeting on Monday, you heard a little bit about this, but uh, as part of our mission to be that whole church forming whole disciples of Jesus, we are passionate about reaching the next generation for the glory of God and for the good of all people. So we have a couple of serving opportunities designed to help you uh, take a next step toward Jesus in this way. So first, if you love college students, and why wouldn't you, why not show them some love by providing some laundry and food care. Uh, we're partnering with college ministries at the University of Iowa to offer hospitality services, aka helping them find a place to do laundry and get a nice home-cooked meal in your home. So uh, just this last week, uh, my wife Katie and I hosted a college student um, in our home. I didn't ask him if I could share this, so I won't say his name, but we had a great time talking with him and um, you know, I think he had a ton of fun. He's an oldest son and has younger siblings at home. And so it was fun to have him play with our, our boys and just feed him some food. And uh, I know when I was a student at the University of Iowa, one of the tough things was that Sunday nights, uh, there was no food service. The dining halls were closed and you had to sort of fend for yourselves. The, the dining hall packages were for 20 meals a week, not 21, not seven three times a day, seven days a week. It was every day except for Sunday, they'd have every meal prepared. So you either had to go out to eat, which was expensive, or figure it out on your own. And so anyway, the other thing is that uh, even though you pay thousands and thousands of dollars to be a student at the University of Iowa, uh, laundry is not included. So you're either going to the laundromat or you're using the the university's laundry facilities where you actually pay pay your own money to uh, pay for laundry services, which is fun. So uh, why not give them the opportunity to do that in your home and make it a way to connect with them and uh, perhaps through those students that you connect with uh, through to more students who might want to uh, continue to grow in Christ or begin to learn more about Jesus. So uh, you can find out more about that in the episode notes. We're calling it L14. 
um, which is referring both to a couple of Bible passages that refer to uh, both hilariously to laundering and also to loving those around us. So that's the idea. Uh, Secondly, uh, in terms of next-gen serving opportunities, if middle school and high school students are more your jam, more power to you because Parkview Student Ministries needs more adult leaders on Sunday nights to pour into those students. Uh, These are kids who are asking big questions about identity and purpose in life, and our team is doing a great job uh, getting them connected, but they need some more help, uh, particularly in need of female leaders in high school uh, for the high school girls. Um, So if that's you, please join us. You can, again, look in the show notes for this episode as you're listening and get connected with an opportunity there. There's nothing quite like getting to discuss the Bible with young people, hear their honest questions. I know you will grow in your faith as they grow in their faith, and it will be super awesome. So uh, take a look at that in the show notes. So find details. You can also go on to our website, parkviewchurch.org slash next steps. That is sort of a dynamically, continually updated place for you to go if you're ever looking for a place where you could Uh, Take a next step to grow, uh, particularly with each week's announcements. It's always kind of lined up there. So next steps. So let's do it. Let's make whole disciples of the next generation. And let's move on to our passage. So here we are, guide segment. Let's get a big picture of the passage, navigate some speed bumps, and give a couple places to land in application. We are in Luke 2, 22 through 52. I'm actually going to mention 21. So bonus verse and give you a couple of thoughts to take with you as you process through this week and get to our discussion on Sunday. So here we go. Verse 21, I'll begin in Luke chapter two. It says at the end of eight days, when he, that is Jesus, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I'll pause there. Now, it's noteworthy to see uh, the name Jesus has become quite commonplace to us because, uh, well, a lot of people know about him. uh, And he, I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus the Bible sometimes get a, gets a tough rap. Christians, the church, get a tough rap. Jesus seems to come out pretty well uh, at in our particular time and place, and it's a good thing to know. Many people don't know what the name Jesus means, though. The name Jesus means Je- Jehovah is salvation. Hebrew name Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah, of course, meaning God. God is salvation. Um, it's noteworthy, too, that the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph bring in the temple is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, this was not the sort of normal sacrifice that was to be given uh, when a, a child opened the womb, particularly a firstborn son. We learn about it in Leviticus 12.6 uh, that normally the sacrifice would have been a lamb uh, that would be offered in place of the firstborn son to redeem him. Uh, a lamb and a pigeon. So one is for a, a certain kind of sacrifice, the other for another. So lamb plus pigeon. But uh, there was an alternative sacrifice that was laid out in Leviticus 12 that is that instead of the lamb, you could offer a second pigeon or a second turtle dove. In this case, it's, it says too. 
And the reason that you would do that is if you were too poor to afford a lamb. So what Luke points out here, for for some reason he includes this detail, is that Mary and Joseph are too poor to afford a lamb. Uh, All that they can afford is two pretty inexpensive uh, pigeons or turtle doves. And so... That it's an interesting piece of information. Luke wants us to know that the Messiah's background is one of poverty and the lack of privilege and lack of wealth. The king of the universe did not come into lavish circumstances, even though he could, of course, he invented gold. <laughs> he did not seem to have any of it. So, continuing in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Um, I'll just pause there. Uh, We're going to see Simeon and Anna, who is a a prophetess. We see Simeon is also going to announce a prophecy, although this one is, this first section is not really a prophecy per se. It's more a song of praise. But one of the things that Luke is trying to draw us to is the character of both of these people. Of course, the content of their announcements and their songs of praise matters. But one thing that he really points out, you notice back in verse 25, he says, man named Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. And listen to this. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll learn about Anna here in a moment that Anna was waiting for, she was speaking of God, of Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So I want you to even now just start thinking about what that means and what kind of character God is highlighting and calling us to here. But we see uh, Simeon, Simeon apparently also had a visit from, was it from an angel? Was it a word of prophecy in some other way? But in verse 29, he says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. There's nothing in the Old Testament that would promise that that, uh, he was going to see the Christ before he died. But apparently he had been promised that. We don't get told about that, but it's clear that that's what happened. That this salvation, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He sees that Jesus is just as his name has is fittingly given to him, Jesus, meaning Jehovah is salvation, that he said he doesn't say, I have seen news of your salvation, or I have seen uh, a sign that your salvation is coming. He said, I have seen your salvation. As he is holding baby Jesus in his arms, looking at him, he says, I am seeing salvation. Jesus himself is the salvation of God that has been prepared for all peoples, for the Gentiles and for the people of Israel. And can you imagine, can you imagine Mary and Joseph seeing this happen, this old man taking Jesus up in their arms, given what Mary and Joseph know about this child and what's been entrusted to them and this announcement that's being made. And verse 33 records their response. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, and here's Simeon's prophecy. It says, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also 
so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And, well, as we continue to read Luke's uh, telling of the story of Jesus, this is absolutely fulfilled. This is absolutely what happens with Jesus. Uh, The fall and rising of many in Israel, you can think of individuals and groups that were exalted or brought down through his ministry and through his sacrifice. Um, For a sign that's opposed, absolutely um, opposed, and a sword will pierce through their own soul, or it says your own soul also, singular, and it's speaking to Mary, it says. Um, Of course, we know that Joseph would uh, would die before Jesus's um, crucifixion, and and Mary was actually there for it, and you can imagine that moment of pain for her um, and the thoughts of many hearts being revealed. This absolutely turned out to be true. Then we find out about Anna. So in verse 36, it says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from the time when she was a virgin. 37, oh, sorry, (laughs) she was a virgin. That's the verse number I just read. Sorry about that. (laughs) Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and with worshiping, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And what we're going to see in this next segment is Jesus continuing to have increasing understanding of who he is and we're going to see mary and joseph uh scrambling because they don't seem to truly understand who jesus is so there's a contrast there so you'll see that as i continue in verse 41 now his parents went to jerusalem every year at the feast of the passover and when he was 12 years old they went up according to the custom and when the feast was ended as they were returning the boy jesus stayed behind in jerusalem his parents did not know it um now, this was, it was typical that groups would travel. You would travel in a large group. This was safer. There was not no Iowa State Patrol keeping you from robbers and um, people who would hide out in caves along the, the route to Jerusalem, especially during times of heavy traffic like this. And so uh, it's not as if, you know, it's not like we all went to McDonald's, all three of us, you know, and then or whatever, and then we're coming home, and oh, whoops, didn't you, you didn't grab the baby? No, they were in a big group, and so it was, it was somehow understood that Jesus would be with them, and they find that he did not come with the group. He just assumed he was. Uh, so 44, it says, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Can you imagine the panic? You've been entrusted with the son of God. He's 12 years old, remember? And he, you lost him, okay? The, the fate of the entire universe is sort of, it's kind of in your hands. And you managed to lose him? What is going on? Can you imagine the scrambling that they are doing? Uh, but it says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, it says after three days. That means, of course, they had already gone one day's journey away from Jerusalem on their way home. Then you'd assume one day's journey back. So that's two days. And then a third day of looking around. Uh, So it's been now three days. And apparently, it seems, they did not immediately look in the temple. They looked a bunch of other places. Um, We'll see that also from their 
from Jesus' response. So after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Um, And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And um, now I want to stop there. And some people will read this, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, we've been searching for you. And you instantly sort of put yourself in this situation with your, your kid or maybe your cat or something. And you think this person is really, they've wronged me. And of course, we're talking about Jesus here, and so that can be that can be challenging to think. Well, was Jesus disobeying his parents? Was he um, disrespectful to them? Was he dishonoring them? And that's right there in the Ten Commandments, right? And so, was Jesus sinning here, and therefore we don't have a sinless Savior? Um, well, first first response is, well, what do, what does the passage actually say, and what is it actually communicating to us? Um, and and to think a little bit more carefully about that now. In this, um, in the circumstance, it seems much more likely that what's happened is Jesus is acting like a twelve-year-old. He's he's not. He hasn't been um, sinful. He's just been socially insensitive. He hasn't he hasn't grasped the the significance possibly of what this really how this would affect his mom and dad. Um, and so it's important to sort of separate a lack of social sensitivity. Uh, from from disrespect and sin, um, both uh, for the parents who are out here. I remember one time um, with my son Jack, uh, trying to get him ready for bed, and he's just bouncing off the walls. And you know he's he's jumping off of his bed, he's going crazy, and I get to just just getting frustrated with him. And I remember um, just I just, just I think I just said to Jack, "Why can't you just hold still? Why are you why do you keep playing? You know." And Jack looked at me with his big brown puppy dog eyes and he said, dad, I'm a kid. I'm playful. And I just remember laughing and just thinking, you know, he's right. You know, it was, it was, it was my problem for instantly sort of expecting him to act like a, like a adult when he was, it it wasn't coming from a place of disobedience. It was just coming from a place of childishness, childlikeness even. And so also when we read this in Jesus, we, our assumption really should be, you know, that this is mainly a, a lack of social sensitivity. He just wasn't thinking about how it was going to affect his mom and dad, not because he was sinning against them, but simply because he just, he was still developing. Uh, we know that um, in, back in verse 40, it talks about, just read it to you, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Wisdom wasn't some, wisdom is something that Jesus somehow had to acquire. This is one of those mysteries about Jesus growing up when he was, when he was a baby, he, you know, he filled his diapers up and he was just, he cried, you know, we sing silent night, holy night. And I always kind of think, really, that's not really quite right. Is it? I'm, Jesus was a normal baby. He was a fully human baby. He cried. And, um, when he was a five-year-old, he had to learn how to do math and he had, you know, don't play with knives, <laughs> you know, don't play with, uh, play with that. You need to, and so also, you know, we have Jesus who's simultaneously full of this incredible wisdom in the temple and, um, you know, a, a philosopher at a young age and amazing people with his answers. And yet he's still growing in his, uh, in his ability to navigate relationships. Doesn't that sound like a 12 year old? Um, but Jesus, so Jesus responds to them and he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
And they did not under this understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Um, and so we're seeing that Jesus increasingly understands that his mission, his that he is, just as you know, we can understand his growing sense of his of who he is and what he's there to do is that he is the son of God. Um, he is, you know, when he says, don't you understand that I must be in my father's house? We should understand that that's a massive thing for a 12 year old to say. And for Jesus to say is that he's understood himself to be the son of God, to, to say that the temple is my father's house. It's not a prevalent idea in the old Testament that God is, is, God is described sometimes as the father of Israel. You know, out of Egypt, I called my son. But there, verses like that are really few and far between. When we get to the New Testament, we see the idea of sonship, of divine sonship for Jesus, of course, but of sonship for us as adopted children into God's family becomes a lot more prevalent. But in the Old Testament, you hardly ever see it. And so for Jesus to apply that idea to himself was really a pretty massive revelation of his understanding as God's own son. And then in the very next verse, we see Jesus coming down to Nazareth and being submissive to his parents. So at the same time, we have this fascinating sort of juxtaposition of Jesus' massive self-understanding of himself as God's divine son and pairing that with the fact that he was willing to be submissive to broken, sinful parents, Um, obviously as an act of submission to his true father in heaven whose house he had sort of left. He went down to his, you know, he goes down to Nazareth, to Joseph's house, uh, after leaving his father's house in Jerusalem, the temple. So there's there's sort of a great irony there. Um, and it says, and his, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we have Jesus, the boy Jesus now, th- 13 years old was the first year that you were actually required as a, as a young man to go to the temple for the Passover previous to that, you're not actually required. It was mainly for the men and the family to go do that. Um, and traditionally the women and the children would stay behind, but we see that Mary actually goes and uh, Jesus goes. It seems that they're an especially devout family, but what can we take away from this? So we have, remember Simeon and Anna and their example. And then we have, uh, the, the search for Jesus and finding him and that whole thing. So I want to give you one big idea and a couple things to think about as we prepare to hear this preached on Sunday. And that big idea would be to seek and find the Savior. Uh, That's what we see in this passage, people seeking and finding the Savior. So on the one hand, I want you to think about Simeon and Anna and to imitate them. The key word for both of them, the thing that seems to draw them both together in Luke's mind, and, and this is what God is communicating through him, is that they are both waiting on the Lord waiting on the Lord's salvation, waiting on, in the, in the case of Simeon, it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the consolation, meaning waiting for God. This is the word that in Isaiah 40 is translated comfort. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Uh, you know, speak to my people, cry out to them that their suffering is ended. Um, so they were waiting for, this is Simeon waiting for the Lord to comfort Israel and to end her suffering. Uh, and for Anna, the the phrase is that she was speaking with those who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. And so one thing this passage is doing is encouraging us to imitate their character of waiting on the Lord, waiting on the consolation of God. And this this has, I think, 
a couple of dimensions. First, at the broadest level, we think of uh, Jesus' return to set all things to rights in his world, and, and that's something we should be eagerly hoping for and waiting for. We know the early church was, uh, they invented a whole word, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Um, and as we look at the things that are going wrong in this world, that's that should be our refrain, come Lord Jesus, and that we should be setting our ultimate hopes not on our own sort of industriousness um, and our own achievement, spiritually speaking, or how many disciples we can make, that, as if that is going to be, even though that's that is what God has called us to in this in this time, but ultimately looking to the return, keeping our eyes on the skies, waiting for the return of Christ, who will set things right ultimately, while we do what he has called us to do in the here and now, which is to make whole disciples of Jesus. Um, so let's imitate Simeon and Anna in that broad level of expecting the return of Christ and working on what he has called us and, and gifted us and filled us with his spirit to do uh, in the here and now. Uh, also, the second point of application I encourage you to think about is to seek Jesus when and where he may be found. One of the great ironies of the story of Mary and Joseph is that they looked around trying to find Jesus and couldn't, you know, didn't find him until they went and looked in the temple, which, you know, consider, consider all the experiences that Mary and Joseph had had, uh, the virgin birth, the announcement of the angel, both to Mary and Joseph, although we don't see Joseph, the announcement to Joseph here, that's in Matthew, but um, just just imagine all the things that they had seen and heard and how they certainly would have noticed that Jesus was a peculiar child um, in terms of his behavior and, and his character, even even though he was a child. Um, and then to get to the point where they, they don't know where to find him and they have to and Jesus sort of, you know, it's it's tough to call it a rebuke, but when he says, you know, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house in the temple um, learning more here about, you know, this whole mission that I've been given to save the world? Um, and so we, we should, like Mary and Joseph, here's what the way I would describe this. We ought to be like Simeon and Anna waiting on the Lord, wait, and they're in the temple, right? But often we're more like Mary and Joseph, surprised to find Jesus um, where we, sh- we shouldn't be surprised at all. It should be the first place that we would look. So um, think through what that would look like for you as, you as you seek Jesus right now and seek next steps for growth in Christ. And with that said, I'm going to move on to the training segment. And I think I'd probably just encourage you all to, to hang on for this one. I'm going to talk a little bit about what we'll be discussing on uh, Sunday night for our community groups kickoff. So we'll move on to that now. So what I what I want to cover with us real quick here is uh, our group values. We've been reviewing these. Um, we know Parkview, uh, our, our community groups are places where we uh, cultivate an environment of relational safety. Excuse me. We make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. Um, but it's important for us to know what growth means. What does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? And how does that play into what Parkview is doing as a whole? So uh, you probably have heard that Parkview exists to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples of Jesus Christ for the good of all people. But how does that actually happen? As in, what do we mean when we say make disciples? I have a feeling that if you were to ask 10 people what it means to make disciples, uh, you'd probably hear 10 different answers. 
Um, some people, when you say make disciples, they instantly go to evangelism. Uh, they think that it's shorthand um, for you going out into the street and making disciples. You know, they're not disciples of Jesus right now. And you tell them the good news of Jesus. You share that God actually loves them, but that they are sinners and that Christ died for them. And uh, there's hope for them to repent and turn to Christ and experience God's love and new life through the resurrection of Jesus and hope for the future and, and for tomorrow. And that that is what making disciples means, evangelism. Uh, some others would probably give you some version of, you know, a shorthand for mentorship, probably one-on-one mentorship toward toward Christian growth, that that would be discipleship. We're giving them discipleship, um, discipling someone. We have, you can turn it into a verb, you can turn it into a noun. Um, so some, I'd, I'd say those are probably some two main kind of poles of this conversation. Some emphasize evangelism, others uh, emphasize growth in Christian maturity, and I will say all of those definitions are totally reasonable. At Parkview, uh, when we think of what it means to make disciples, we think it is Jesus' umbrella term for everything that we do, everything that we do, to exercise uh, the initiative that must be taken by Christian people, especially mature Christian people, well-formed, established, and equipped Christian people to influence others to take a next step with Christ. And that applies whether that person happens to be a believer in Jesus now or whether they are not yet a believer in Jesus. And that's what we see when we read a passage, a crucial passage like Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Um, Jesus says that we should make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Uh, And so uh, under that heading of going and making disciples are two things. First, baptizing and teaching. We can think of baptizing. uh, That is sort of the entry gate into the Christian life, and that would certainly align with what we think of as evangelism. People must must hear the good news of Jesus and repent and then be baptized. Um, And teaching is clearly an ongoing process. Um, It says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That sounds a lot like that second definition of, of making disciples, meaning the ongoing process of Christian maturity. So what does it mean to make disciples? Well, that's as you can see, it's Jesus' umbrella term for everything that we do to influence others to take the next step with Christ, whether that person is a believer in Jesus or not. So it's probably not hard to see how our community groups connect with that that global mission of Christ. Um and that's why our mission statement for our community groups is what it is, that uh, these are the, the, the core things that we think have to be present in a group in order for it to grow is relational safety, which we discussed a few weeks ago, and spiritual initiative, meaning we need to uh, be eager and with a heart set on helping those in group. This is not just for group leaders, by the way, but looking at the people around us as, uh, as those to whom we are committed to helping them grow in Christ by speaking the words of Christ, by praying for them, by persevering with them and caring for them. And um, over over time, that's what God does. That's how actually Jesus intends to carry out his global mission here on earth. Uh, so what does that actually look like? Growth. What does that actually mean? And what does it actually, I don't know, look like? Um. Well, at Parkview, we have sort of outlined what it looks like for us to be when we say, you know, whole disciples. What do we actually mean by that? 
And so we've we've produced a little document that will you'll get a chance to see and reflect on as you prepare for this Sunday's conversation at the community group kickoff. But I'm going to just give it a brief outline now for you to just kind of get it into your mind and get thinking about it. So what we say is that uh, a whole disciple is a forgiven child of God who is taking the next step to learn Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live Jesus. This is what we call a whole disciple. And each of those definitely, or each of those domains or areas of discipleship, learning, loving, and living, uh, it aligns with what we often think of as kind of a typical uh, learning diagram, or how do you say this? A way of thinking about the human person that sort of includes every part. Uh, head, heart, and hands, often you'd think of. Or what Jesus says, uh, to have a good Bible example for where we got this, um, Jesus said that you must, of course, he's quoting Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Uh, we're combining two of those categories into love, but you can see the same thing there. So learning Jesus means in one dimension, that means that we submit to God's word, the Bible. And health in that area means that you devote consistent time to studying the word of God. You go to the Bible to understand how to navigate everyday issues. You seek opportunities to expand your understanding, including reading good Christian books and other ways to learn more from the Bible. So learning Jesus means submitting to God's word, the Bible. Learning Jesus also means embracing true identity in Christ. That's where we take what the Bible says and apply it deeply to our own uh, sense of identity, our sense of self. That means growing to see all of life through the lens of the gospel, pursuing greater understanding of how the gospel of Jesus changes all of life and applying the truths of the gospel to everyday situations. Could this be an area where you could grow? I'm sure it could be for all of us, but is this what the Lord is laying on your heart? That's what I want you to be thinking about as I read these. Uh, so submitting to God's word, the Bible, embracing true identity in Christ, and finally growing with God's people. So an indicator of health in that domain would be that you consistently devote time and energy to learn from and alongside God's people in various ways. Uh, could be Sunday worship, community group, informal gatherings. You seek out wisdom, insight, and sustained membership from other members. So a whole disciple of Jesus will learn Jesus by growing with God's people. And that covers all of the categories in learning Jesus. Then we talk about loving Jesus. This has to do with our affections, the things we love, our habits, our, the deeply held understanding of ourself at the heart level about how we understand God and the people around us. We have new affections, new gut reactions even. And so here's what that means to love Jesus. First, in the sort of upward category, it would mean that you love Jesus passionately above all else. Uh, we can all grow in this area. Uh, an indicator of health in this area, here are a few of them. It means that you're motivated at the deepest level to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, longing for deeper intimacy with Jesus, intimacy in prayer, intimacy in life, in everyday life, intimacy with him and his suffering, sensing his presence, longing for the love of God through Jesus to become a lived, experienced daily reality, um, consistently asking God for a deeper sense of the nearness of Christ. Ooh, boy. That's a lot. Okay. But we'd also love Jesus by repenting with a humble heart. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we will sense his beauty, especially as we consider our brokenness. And that'll be a good thing for us. That's, that's, that's realistic for us. So we repent with a humble heart. There would be a growing awareness of personal, personal sinfulness, being open to correction and criticism, 
rejecting spiritual pride, not being afraid to be wrong, approaching God on the basis of Christ's finished work alone, possessing a growing comprehension that somehow God actually finds your weaknesses attractive, not repulsive. And so loving Jesus and growing in that dimension of your discipleship would mean that you would repent with a humble heart, not just once, although that is all that is needed to come to Christ, we just repent, um, but that would be an ongoing process of daily, weekly, we'd see repentance with a humble heart characterizing the life of a whole disciple. And finally, outwardly loving Jesus by loving God's people. You remember uh, when Saul, who of course was called Paul later also in the Bible, uh, was going to Damascus and um, was blinded on the road, and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And But of course he was persecuting his church, and so Jesus has great affection for his church, and so to love Jesus means to love God's people. Um, so we would see expanding and deepening affection for God's people, longing for deeper communion with others, an openness to bear the burdens of others, of brothers and sisters in Christ, a deep curiosity about other believers' personalities and particular gifts and needs. You'd see here, I'm just going to throw this one in there. Loving God's people would mean you, you become curious to know a good question asker. What are the people around me really sensing and feeling? Uh, and how can I help them? Okay, so that's learning and loving just then. And now living. What does it mean for us to live Jesus as whole disciples? And you can see here, we're trying to give you as much detail as you want, okay? You, if you just need to say, you know what, I need to grow in my learning of, about God, uh, great. That's a, all you need to know. Boom, you're ready to go. That's, let's talk about what that might look like this year. Uh, if you want to know uh, with way more granular detail down to little examples of what that actually means, we've got that too. Um, so finally, living Jesus. And the three dimensions there uh, are in pursuing the Spirit's leading prayerfully, what that means is that there would be increasing depth, complexity, consistency, and intimacy with God in prayer. I'll say those things again. Increasing depth in prayer, increasing complexity in prayer, in- increasing consistency in prayer, intimacy in prayer, increasing instinct to go to God in prayer first rather than as a last resort. Ouch. <laughs> that you would see prayer as an opportunity and not a chore. That is what it would look like to pursue the Spirit's leading prayerfully. Inwardly, you'd see a change in living Jesus by stewarding all of life for God's glory. Uh, this would mean that you are you find yourself seeking new ways to honor Jesus with uh, all of your resources, your time, your talents, your treasures, uh, your finances, right? And other resources that you have at hand, your gifts. Even when faithfulness brings suffering, um, you'd find yourself thinking more and more without without any particular reason, but it's just coming to your mind. Boy, I've got 20 minutes here, or man, that, that's a surprise $100 in my bank account. What should I do with it? And not immediately jumping to the thought of self, but to thought of what would Christ want me to do with this? It might come back to let's go on a date tonight, but um, you would see that being your first instinct. What does Jesus, offering it first to Christ letting him direct and guide you. Uh, and then finally, the final thing to say here, you'd live Jesus by inviting others to take the next step toward Jesus. So here's what you'd see. You'd identify those whom God has placed nearby in your life, in your to, nearby to your soul, whether in literal distance or in spiritual distance, so to speak. Some people you feel closer to that live in India than that live next door to you. And sometimes that's the Lord's work. So you'd notice those people uh, in order to help them learn Jesus. 
you'd long to help each person to take a next step toward Jesus. So you'd see an inward change. To know how to encourage disciples and evangelize the lost and to display a serious, ooh, a serious sense of spiritual initiative in every relationship where that is your calling. Uh, so uh, that's our definition of a whole disciple, a forgiven child of God, taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and live Jesus with some really specific what does this actually look like? What does health look like in this area growing? So I hope you would think about this in this coming week. And as we prepare for our kickoff on Sunday, we want to be vulnerable with one another and set some actual sort of honest self-assessment goals. I know, brother, for instance, I know I need to grow in my love for Christ. Uh, I don't sense that my affections have really changed. Or, man, I've been a Christian for a while now, but I, you know, I have never really read the Bible uh, seriously and really devoted myself to it. I want to take a step of growth in that. Can you, can you help me? Can you encourage me? Could we partner in that? I'm certain that we're going to find on Sunday night that many of us have similar goals, similar needs, and God is going to give us the incredible opportunity to be honest with one another and partner together in what the Lord wants to do in us and through us this year. So come and be part of that, and let's just rejoice through it together as we make whole disciples. All right. So having said all that, I hope you have a great week, and, well, I'll see you on Sunday. 